Girls, where have they gone? Singing these songs to rob the lost Africans, where have they gone? Singing these songs to rob the lost Africans, where have they gone? I pray you find your way, remember the place where you're coming from. Ancient African culture is lost from generations. Memories denied like freedom will our children understand. The spirits of our ancestors is like a forgotten song. Rise from the spell, my people. Chant this one, loud and strong. Singing these songs to rob the lost Africans. Where rap they gone? Singing these songs to rob the lost Africans. Where rap they Good afternoon, everyone. That was Lost Africans by Rory Stonelove. Um, he's a reggae artist out of Jamaica. It is Monday, October 3rd, and this is your girl, Vanessa, and I am welcoming you to day one of season six of Black History Boot Camp, where we're going to be telling the stories of our neighborhood. And I'm going to be joined on this call by my co-partner, and you sound like you're in the whiz. What's happening over there? <laughs> no. Hello, everybody. My name is Morgan. Hurricane it sounds Ian like you're walking. It's happening. The pop oh. with the ladies who was kind of prostitutes in the whiz. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Ironically, yeah, I almost started this call with a um, song from the whiz, but I'm sorry it's crazy, but it's crazy because this is a walking podcast because we are innovating. We are not just in some studio or behind some like windshielded microphone, but I am actually in my neighborhood in Washington, D.C., currently walking in Malcolm X Park because we're going to be talking about about Malcolm X today. So if you hear wind or sirens or laughter or talking, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Morgan. I'm walking in Ghana, and I have to say hello to my neighbor. Hey, how you doing? All right. Good, good, good. <laughs> hey, neighbor. <laughs> got on a pretty shirt. That's that guy that's Hold on, let me walk over. that guy that I said was talking? The guy who always was showing up. Oh, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> he, look, he's on the boot camp. He, he's on the boot camp listserv. And he know, he's like, I'm about to get my girl out here. That ain't even funny. Like, if you need an SOS, say it live on air, please, so I can help you. I'm going to blink twice. I'm going to blink twice. I'm going to say, um, uh, I need a code I can't word. see you if you blink on the phone. What's the code word? The code word is Malcolm X. Mm. was free. That's the code word. Oh, yo. It's so funny because... I have a neighbor who listens to boot camp. Shout out to my neighbor. You know who you are. And she came over for a whole few hours yesterday. And she kept saying, you all right? But she didn't want to say. She learned that I broke up with my man on boot camp. <laughs> I know. 
I was like, is working going to be okay talking about this on a Monday? But I just feel like people want to know or understand so they can give you some love. Do you need love? Are you on the rebound? Like, can you give us a report before we get into this? I don't have no report. Oh, God, no. Because you know what? Here's the thing, Vanessa. Yes. We're too definitive in our lives. I really believe that. Amen. In or out, this or this, and really every day I'm waking That's up right. and trying to make choices. Ebb and flow, ebb and flow. Every single day. Yeah. So I wake up one morning and I'm like, I love this man. Look at his six pack because he's still living in my house, y'all. So don't judge. <laughs> and then some days I just be like, I'm going to the club. <laughs> I'm going to the club. So on any given day, here's the thing if you're led by love, you can't go wrong. It's just the truth. And I try to treat everybody with respect. There's not anybody I've ever loved that I don't still love. That's the truth. And I also know that I have personally yeah. accepted too little and gave too much. And yes. I have personally I have personally shrank myself in order to make other people feel good and feel bold and feel big. And I just won't do it anymore. And that's just who I am. And my man's awesome, you know, or my ex-man or whatever he is, the man that's upstairs. He's awesome. And he... You know, I don't know who the one is. You know who the one is? Me. I'm the one. I'm the one. So I'm trying to figure out what that looks like every day. And it has felt great the last two or three weeks. Feels great. Uh, right? I love that. Sorry yeah. about these sirens Sorry. going by. It's okay. I got distracted by this man with his, his slides on. He was so fine. You know them guys who wear them basketball slides? And they just be yes. like sliding. And they, their little calf muscles be coming. And I was like... <laughs> I feel like all Africa wears those slides for the record or some fake Gucci slides or somebody's slides. But I feel like if y'all didn't know that slides was a forward choice, just go to the continent, okay? Don't come to Ghana. You ain't got no flip-flops and no slides because you're going to be looking country. You got to look hip. No, I wear Birkenstocks on like four-mile walk now because my feet are strong. I currently have on my... I can't wait. No, I, we're, we're going to get into it now. But no, I'm actually walking in my Uggs right now because it's cozy, it's cozy and like cold in D.C. It's like that type of weather now. And as soon as I was putting them on, I was like, I feel like the respectability police is going to tell me something. Because I feel like even Uggs now, people will be like, can't be showing up in them Uggs. Like, you know, like, I don't know. But <laughs> these Uggs is comfy. Well, first of all. And <laughs> They're keeping my respectability police. I am the respectability police. And you'll be sweating up in the mugs. Shout out to the two truckers who are visiting Ghana, who I went to breakfast with today from Houston. Uh, Shout out to y'all. Hope you have a great trip. The Zetas are in town for some really powerful community service. And the former international president of the Zetas, who we interviewed in the Daughters of Conversation, she's here. And like 150 Zetas are here. And they went to a school. They opened up a library at the Slave Castle Girl. They got a computer lab going. They got a hospital going. I mean, shout out to Black sororities who are doing their thing around the yes. world. Appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> well, let's get into this conversation today, Morgan. When we started researching what addresses we were going to talk about for this edition, I feel like we both um, talked about and wanted to talk about Malcolm X's childhood home. And I don't even, we only talked about it briefly, so I don't know what your motivation was. But for me, I was like, because his parents are the story. 
like for all of the things that we know about Malcolm X, it's Earl and Luis who were like really this little, who were the story. And so as I was doing the research for this episode, I was just grateful that we were going to, there's a lot of addresses that if you were going to talk about Malcolm X's life from the ballroom where he was murdered to the home where he spent his formative years in New Jersey to the prison where he spent eight years. Like there's a lot of addresses that we could use, but this address, 3448 Pinckney Street in Omaha, Nebraska is where we're going to start today's story. I didn't know that much about Omaha, Nebraska, Morgan, or even Nebraska itself before I started doing the research, but I want to set some context so that people can start to envision in their mind as you walk wherever you are, one foot in front of the other, feet touching the earth and kissing it as you walk. I want you to envision what this town was like. A couple of facts about Omaha, Nebraska. One, the first black man on record in the state of Omaha was a part of uh, Lewis and Clark's expedition. He was an enslaved man named York, and he's on record of being there in 1804. It was in 1854, Morgan, when Omaha was formally established by the United States Congress as a state, 1854, at a picnic. This is ignorant, but I just want to let y'all know that I, that piece of the detail was important to me that some white folks came into Indian territory, knew all of the folks, all of the tribes that were already living there, had a picnic and decided that they was going to make the state Nebraska. Um, And so that was in 1854 when Nebraska became a state. And it was five years after the founding of Omaha that a proposal was raised that they would abolish slavery within the city limits. That failed and slavery, although technically illegal, was um, widely practiced throughout the state. But our story picks up at an important part in American history, Morgan, and that is World War I, 1914 to 1918, and what happened after World War I, which I think many people have read about, and that is the Great Migration. And during the Great Migration, Northern companies were recruiting heavily out of the South because they were experiencing labor shortages. And it was estimated that by 1910, almost 500,000, a half a million Black folks had immigrated or fled, depending on what language you want to use, the terrors of the Jim Coast South, seeking better lives in Northern states. Omaha was a city in the plains that attracted the most Black people from the South in the Great Migration. And in fact, Morgan, by 1920, only Los Angeles on the West had, going West, had more Black people than Omaha, Nebraska did. But Holy cow, I didn't know that. Holy cow. I know, I know. And Kathy Hughes, by the way, the woman who founded uh, Radio One, one of the richest Black women in the world, and Gabrielle Union are also from uh, Malcolm X's neighborhood. So if somebody knows them, tag them and shout them out and let them know that we're telling this important story about Omaha so that the people can understand what was going on. I feel like Omaha is kind of like Seattle, one of those places where people are like, wait, Black folks live in Omaha? But it's like, yes, and they roll deep there. So, Morgan, as the Great Migration was happening, there was also a rise of anti-Black riots that were happening post-World War because there was a ton of tension in the country. It was related to, essentially, there not being enough, like, literally, America 2022. There not being enough jobs. 
there being a class war that was being propelled by the wealthy, there being a narrative that, of course, the black folks around the country were taking over the were taking the jobs. And then you had all these war veterans who were coming home and not able to get jobs. And it created a huge anti-black sentiment that was organized and intentional. And in 1919, there was a period that was called Red Summer. Red Summer was actually coined by the uh, author James Weldon Johnson, who had been working at the NAACP as a field secretary. I didn't actually know this until I was studying this story, but he is the one who actually coined um, the term Red Summer. And throughout Red Summer in cities across the country, Morgan, there was a coordinated attack against Black people and Black cities. And there was record numbers of lynchings that were happening. And I think there was like 48 lynchings that happened throughout that summer. 43 people who were lynched, like 16 people who were shot and tons of others who were burned at the stake, whose houses were destroyed. And in particular, in Omaha on September 28, 1919, a race riot broke out after a black man named Will Brown, who was a black civilian man who a white woman had accused of uh, raping her, and he was lynched. And that set off the red summer that happened in Omaha. And I give you that context so that you can know that only... Five years after that, Malcolm X was born in the city, and it was at that around that time that his parents came to the city. So they arrived from these, um, and I'll talk about where they arrived from in a second, but they arrived um, from Philadelphia at the time, and they arrived in Omaha, and they arrived at the hotbed of a race riot and a very, very organized KKK that ranked over 45,000 in the state. And they had a national convention, Morgan, a children's club, a women's club. Like it was a full on organized um, state sponsored terrorism group. And they were terrorizing black folks throughout Nebraska. And yet there was a lot of black people in the country who were like, this sounds better than what the KKK right got a children's group. <laughs> Sorry, you can't just roll over that. How the KKK got a children's group? That's it. That's what I want to know. We better organize. We need girl check girls. We need like some <laughs> oh. the blue bonnets. We need the blue bonnets or something, y'all. Come on now. If liberation we work were as coordinated and and uh, and organized as hate work, if we could be more fueled by love than hate. Our world would be in a different place, but that's a crazy little fact. You, Forty-five thousand people is a lot of people in any chapter in any organization, and then to have generations of people studying their doc, their doctrine and dogma uh, is is quite scary. And then Vanessa, when you were talking, I was like, I didn't know about. I knew James Weldon Johnson was the secretary for the NAACP, but I didn't know he coined the Red Summer of Hate in 1919. But what's crazy yeah. about that as you were talking is I was thinking about, I don't remember what episode it was, but I was thinking about, so you know, 1919 is when the women's suffrage movement was really, really in full yep. swing when they were like marching in Washington with them signs, give women the right to vote and Susan B. Anthony, all them people, right? So that was yeah. 1919 and then they, they got the 19th Amendment passed in 1920. And I was just thinking, you know, all of this, all of these ideas around feminism got a lot of momentum around the suffragist movement and I was like, how could we possibly be talking about gender issues or equality when literally we're getting killed in the streets? Our men are getting killed in the streets and white women are actually at the center 
of the violence against particularly yes. black men, but that brings it into the black community. So it's like such a, a powerful juxtaposition around what's happening around getting the women the right to vote. And all of these women, whether they're in relationships with black men or want to be in relationships with black men, whatever, whatever the case is, or in cases, maybe they were assaulted or raped by black men. I don't know, but it's just, I think it's an interesting juxtaposition. And where, do, where are black women in all of this is just a question to think about. It is a question to think about. There was a recent video that was on Instagram that was so triggering of this. Did you see this black man who was checking out in the Walmart and the white woman? He said the white woman cut him in line and she starts screaming and screaming. No, I didn't see it. Okay. Yeah. It's good, good that you didn't see it, but it's triggering. And it was triggering for a lot of people, I think, because we're still dealing with the implications of a lot of those things. The one thing about the man who was lynched in Omaha, his name was Willie Brown, is that there is an extraordinarily graphic photo of him after he was lynched. They then burned him at the stake. And there's an extraordinarily graphic photo in the news archive. And there's clear as day, you can see every white man's face like in the photo. And then there's like a kid, he's maybe like 13 and he's peeking out and he has like this glee on his face. And I just was like staring at their faces. And I was just like, who are these people? Because my grandmother, Olympia, was born in 1920. So I'm assuming like their families still live there in the area and descendants of their families. And there's, we just have so much work to do in this country around truth and reconciliation and lament, quite frankly. Shout out to actually my No, somebody's father. Somebody's yes. father is in that lynching picture. It's, yes. it's that. It, we're one generation from that. Somebody's father is in that lynching picture and somebody recognizes that their father is in that lynching condition, um, picture. And if it's you and you're listening to boot camp, congratulations on being on the right side of history and, and reconcile in your city, in your state, reconcile. So, man. And Morgan, there's actually, there's actually, I have a friend, her name is Latasha Morrison, and she's a part of the Praxis Fellowship that I'm a part of. She runs an organization called Be the Bridge, and Be the Bridge hosts small community work groups for people who are grappling with and dealing with their own racist past and the past of their families. And it teaches them you know who about participated in that? and Lila. No. Did she? Lila participated in that in Kansas in her program. Yeah. She said, yeah. Oh my God. The Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan was in there. And I was like, Twy, you was in there? She was like, yeah, because you know God is good. We're trying to... <laughs> That's hard and brave work. It's hard and brave work to make eye contact with like what has happened in your past. Like I, some people know, but my father got my mother pregnant when she was a minor and he was significantly older. And like, I don't know the story anymore without that prep because I'm like, these are the facts. Like we cannot sweep stuff under the rug like this. And like, we all, we may not all have a racist past in our family, but we got something in our families and white folks got to reckon and we got to reckon all of us got to reckon with what we have experienced because burying that stuff yeah. deep down is a foundation for the trauma that we are living in right now. All of us, we got to deal with it. You're right. You're absolutely right. Let's yeah. go. Malcolm X. Yeah. No. So that's a good segue actually into talking about Malcolm's mother. Her name was Louise Norton Langdon Little. She was born in St. Andrew's Parish in Granada. I love this fact about her. She was the daughter of Ella, who was the daughter of Jupiter and Mary Jane. And I love that because that means that Malcolm X's grandfather's name was Jupiter. Did you know that? 
No, that's my great seventh great uncle's name. You know, have I told everybody? I that know, I know, I know, I know. I know. I was like, this, that's why I thought maybe you knew. But yeah, so his grandfather's no. name was Jupiter. I feel like that small fact like means something. Luis's mother, Ella, in Granada was rumored to have been raped by a white man there. Luis was half white and she didn't know who her father was. And she was, by all accounts, someone who could have passed for white. That's how light-skinned she was. And that's where Malcolm X kind of got his, you know, they called him um, Little Red, right? Little Red. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, they called him Red. And he got that skin color and tone um, from his mother's lineage. She was an educated woman, Morgan. She was educated at a local Anglican school. She was fluent in English and French and French Creole. And after her grandmother's death, she immigrated from Granada in 1917 to Montreal. And it's there in Montreal that her uncle introduced her to a pivotal philosophy, Garveyism. And it was there in Montreal where she joined the United, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was the organization founded by Marcus Garvey. Um, it was a black nationalist fraternal organization. Its slogan was Africa for the Africans at home and abroad. And the UNIA was really on the push to um, get people to move back to Africa. It's repatriate, UN- girl. You know you were thinking of that word. How was that repatriate? There you go. Morgan comes with the fancy words. And it was there. No, you had it. Montreal. You had it right on the tip of your tongue. And then you try to slide on. You try to slide it. Look, I'm about to try to repatriate too. Give me some dual citizenship. Y'all stay tuned. Um... <laughs> So it was there at the UNIA in Montreal where she met Earl Little, and Earl Little was born in Reynolds, Georgia, and he became a Baptist minister, and he was, his whole family had been traumatized, Morgan, in Reynolds, Georgia. He had four of his brothers killed by white men, one of them who had been lynched. Four of Malcolm X's father's brothers oh, God. by white man and Reynolds brother. Yes, one of them had been lynched. He became a pastor. He eventually got connected with the UNIA, became a devout follower of Garveyism. He met Luis and the couple married. Now, hold, in on. 19- hold on one yep. second. I just have, I have some commentary yes. right here for just one second. I can't stand people mm-hmm. who be like, these people, these Negroes is uh, brainwashed to Christianity or, you know, yes. all of into this religion. Because I'm telling you this right here. Tell them if you can have any hope when you, all of your family been lynched by white supremacy, yes. you can still gather your mind and your heart in a posture of hope. No matter what you call it, whatever, no matter what the dogma or doctrine, if you can still practice any level of hope, the world should stand in applause. That's all I'm yeah. saying. And it strikes me as, as really, really sick privilege when people come. I mean, fine, you could be atheist, you could be um, agnostic, you could be all this stuff, and you could be whatever you want to be. And, and that's fine. And I support and love everybody. Yeah. But the moment you form your lips to talk, to talk down on people and their religiosity means you ain't really never needed a God bigger than you. Yeah. That is so you true. ain't really never needed a God bigger than you. And I count that a blessing for you in your life. Yeah. Go ahead. 
What's that that reminds me of my, one of my black, favorite quotes. The, the grateful man knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And if you haven't yeah. had an experience and you haven't had one, yeah, I totally um, agree I'm with just that. Saying, you, I'm just saying you don't have to have an opinion on everything. That's mostly what I'm saying. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. I used to be so mad at Bill Maher for that because I was like, you know, I love mm-hmm. you, Bill Maher, but you don't have to have an opinion on everything because just because you haven't been on your back or you needed to call the name of something bigger than you, yeah. then, then just, or you were on you your back and your expert. privilege or money or somebody else pulled you up or whatever Lifted you it up, like, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm just struck by the fact that this man became a Baptist minister, which yeah, Christianity, yeah, slave trade. I get it. I can make the arguments. I get what people are saying, and it's. It has also had a flip side on it. I get all of that, but that this particular man yeah. found some kind of reprieve or some kind of spaciousness or hope in the church is, is interesting to me, to say the least. It is. Brother it Little, is. let's hear about that. And then he started studying so, Marcus Garvey. That's yeah, so he, yeah. Started, he started studying Marcus Garvey. He became super active in the UNIA. Uh, his wife also, they married in 1919. So that exact pivotal year, that's why I talked about Red Summer. They married during the summer, uh, during Red Summer. They married that year in 1919. And they moved first to Philadelphia from Montreal, which is where they were, and then to Omaha, Nebraska in 1921. And while they were in Omaha, Luis became the secretary and the branch reporter of the UNIA's local chapter. And she would send news of what was happening um, all across the country through this newspaper that they had called the Negro World. And then um, Earl was preaching, Morgan, and he was preaching on all the corners, like out there in the community, telling people about this a possibility of repatriating, this possibility of connecting themselves to these deeper roots. And there's one thing that needed that, Um, to know that was happening in the neighborhood while he was preaching and while Luis was a secretary. And that was the huge wave of white flight, Morgan, has started to leave North Omaha after those 1919 riots and the ongoing racial tensions that were happening there. And so as they were leaving, then the state and the Supreme Court started having their gentleman agreements and their redlining and their restrictive covenants, and they essentially ghettoized all of North Omaha through the ability so black folks couldn't actually even buy property like north of like the main street and south of like certain street and then they were like set into this enclave totally ghettoized totally set away from any resources and the white folks started to move out and so you had um earl on this street in this community preaching the gospel of what he believed in around garveyism and you had the kkk who was there deep in the city and they were like you are starting to get these black folks who we want to stay in line riled up. You are starting to get these black folks thinking about their liberation, thinking about their identity, thinking that they got rights, thinking that they could, you know, do the like everything in Omaha was totally segregated. And uh, Earl Little was one of the people who was out there preaching something different. And so the KKK started to terrorize them, Morgan, started to come by their house, started to um, burn crosses in their yard. And eventually they had to flee. It was, they fled at the end of 1925. So Malcolm X was actually born there. And this fact I love because I promise every single official fact says that Malcolm X was born at the Omaha City Hospital. But in fact, the local neighborhood historian 
says, no, he was actually born there in that house. And she brought the receipts of the doctors who actually attended to him. But a lot of people at the time who were having home births, when they went to do the official paperwork, would list a hospital. And I love that part of the story. And there's another hero who I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Her name is Rena. And she's a part of this uh, hero, uh, Rowena. She's a black woman hero in this story. But when I tell you that we keep the stories of our neighborhoods, and that's part of the reason that we're doing this, because we need to know that Malcolm X was born in that house and not at a hospital. And no matter what the record or the paperwork says. And it reminds me of when we were talking to Harriet Tubman's family and they were telling us that they didn't know a lot because they weren't trying to keep a lot officially on record because they were fugitives. And so it's like the oral tradition of our communities is the most important tradition that we have in terms of keeping our stories alive. Yeah. So one practical thing we can do is as we walk, ask questions, particularly to our elders, and then repeat the stories that you learn and you hear as you go through your neighborhood so that people who are, you know, any any anybody who's any age listening to this now can start to repeat those stories and tell those stories. And then if yeah. you are really energized about black history, start to document, start to be the branch reporter, start to um, lead people in, in, in collecting and capturing stories, start to join like some of the societies, the historical societies in your neighborhoods and making sure that the black story doesn't get erased. I love this. I love this. Is there a yeah. photo of his parents? Vanessa, were you able to find it? Because as you're talking, I I'm was talking able about, to I'm find about the actors. <laughs> I know. Actors I, actually, it's likely. crazy because I can barely look at Malcolm X and not see Denzel Washington. Like that's how good Denzel Washington <laughs> did in that movie. Even when I was looking at the pictures, I would have to be like, "Is this the picture of Malcolm X, or is this a picture of Denzel Washington?" I did see a picture of his mother, and I saw a picture of his father, but not together. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, we'll share them those. on our I'm social media. Yeah. Okay. So, Morgan, they fled North Omaha. They fled their home there, and they event- they relocated first to Milwaukee, where they, again, encountered both the KKK and then another white supremacist terrorist group called the Black Legion. And so they left Milwaukee and then relocated to Lansing, Michigan. And as soon as they got there, just a year after they got there, their family home was burned down by the Black Legions. And they continued to harass him. And then, and, and this, this date really struck me, on the exact same date, September 28th, that the Omaha race riots happened on the exact same day, September 28th, that that man, Willie Brown, was lynched in Omaha. Just six years later, on September 28th, is when they found Malcolm X's father, Earl Little, on the streetcar tracks, barely alive. They claimed it was an accident, by, but by all accounts, he was murdered by, because he died a day later, was murdered by the Black Legion. Man. And... I don't, it's irrelevant to us doing this story is that I Googled the intersection of East, it's Detroit, East Michigan and Detroit Street. And there's just a Chevy car dealership there. Like I did the whole Google street image, everything like no plaque, no sign, no nothing to mark that this is the place that Earl Little died. This man who raised Malcolm X like nothing, just a car dealership there. And I was just like, this has to be our call to action that we first start to document, which is what we are doing on these conversations. What are the important um, landmarks in our communities? And then Girl Trick is going to come back through with a way that we can preserve them, save them, 
honor them, and I'm putting this intersection on our list. And not just this intersection, but the home at 3448 where Malcolm X was born. Because, Morgan, the house was actually torn down in Omaha, Nebraska in 1970. There was a black family living in the house. And they had no idea that that had been the home where Malcolm X was born. It was later that their family, yes, I know, it was was like 10 years later that the family found out that that was where Malcolm X was born. And then a woman named Rowena Moore, it was her parents' house, she made it her life's mission to preserve that property. And she turned it into the Malcolm X Foundation and she was able to buy up like the 18 acres around the house. Although if you go to a lot of the travel sites now, including somebody called like the quirky travel guy, he was like, well, good luck trying to go to the foundation because it's just some women on Saturdays volunteering who will show you around in the neighborhood. It's sketchy. But I was like, that sounds like the best foundation. That sounds like a, exactly. And that sounded like a celebration that somebody's auntie on a Saturday (laughs) will show you around. And then Morgan, I got deep because I was like, I want to honor Rowena Moore, this woman who did this work. And it, this is the work that black women do. I just want to say a little well, bit Vanessa, about her. Vanessa, send her a, flowers. Send her flowers tomorrow. She passed away. She passed away. Aww. But I, but just to, just to uplift her name and her work. So first of all, during World War II, she noticed that women were not giving jobs in the meatpacking district. And that's why most of the people had come to Omaha because of the meatpacking industry. And she actually organized the first black woman's union, the Defense Women's Club. And she was able wow. to get women hired get them fair wages, their goal, they promoted war bonds and food rationing and all sorts of other stuff. She then was, um, Ooh, she like Omaha the steaks. yes, she then worked in the meatpacking. It was kind of, but yes, because that was, I was thinking, Ooh, you're right. Uh, but she worked in the meatpacking industry for over 20 years. And after that, she actually became the first black woman to run for Omaha City Council. And she said she was inspired because once she had started to research Malcolm X, she started to like listen to his speeches and like really learn a lot about him. And so, yes. And so that led her to her efforts to then uh, petition to the National Historic Site to have that site, which is now registered officially under the National Historic Site, registered as the house where Malcolm X was born. And that all happened. And that history is only preserved because of this black woman. That's a call to action. So everybody knows a place in their neighborhood that is legit historic. Something went down in their neighborhood. Everybody knows it. Whether it was like when I was in Jersey and that skating rink where hip hop, you know, did this or did that. Everybody has something that is amazing in their neighborhood. The National Historic, what is it? What's the The National Historic... Yes, exactly. And actually, I was started to research because I'm going to publish a way on our social where everybody can figure out what is the process, exactly what you're saying, so that we yes, can start to do yes. that. Yes. Yeah, because it's just everyday people who are doing that. And really, it's the opportunity of time and co- the capacity of time to be able to do it. So if you particularly are retired sisters out there, if you are retired, let's get on it. Let's get on it. That is your call to action. Yeah, we've got, I love ooh, that one again. So good. Yeah. And Vanessa, so I had I wanna... a thought we're gonna be um mm-hmm. we're gonna be in the presence of the great Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative yeah. and they are trying to um 
or they are not trying to, they have a whole museum, a lynching museum, and they are marking spaces and they are collecting dirt samples on sites where, where black men were lynched. And they are putting those dirt samples um, with the name and date of the black man who was murdered in this museum so that we can pay reverence and we don't forget. And one of, one of the things we might mention when we talk to him, uh, was that in two weeks, three weeks, Vanessa, is that we want to preserve this site. And is there a way that our members can do that? And maybe they could guide us. Yeah, I love Even that. Even if it's a marker or if we put it in the museum mm-hmm. or whatever it is, maybe we could do that. Mm-hmm. It's another yes. concrete step. Yes. yes. And if anyone, um, if you are not subscribed at blackhistorybootcamp.com, we send out, in addition to these audio recordings, we do a daily curriculum email that you can get in your inbox each morning. And we sent one out today. And I just want to uplift that in that email for today, we also uplifted the historic black neighborhood of Dunbar and Fort Myers, Florida, which was hit hard by Hurricane Ian. And Girl Trek is going to donate $1,000 to the Lee County Black Historic Society there, Morgan, to support their efforts. There was, I didn't even know anything about historic Dunbar until I was just like, we have to do something um, to just acknowledge our coaches, our crews, our people who are down there in the storm who are pushing through right now. But it is a really, um, it has like a really vibrant and rich history. And one of the important and infuriating facts was that Roberto Clemente, a very famous baseball player when he came down there in the 1950s and now everything down there is named after him but he wasn't even allowed to stay in the same hotel that his baseball team was staying at and there was a black couple Edda Edda and Charlie Powell and because so many baseball players were coming down to that area for spring training they and several other black families on the block had got wise and they turned their houses into hotels to house the black baseball players who were coming down into that area. I know. I was just like, we are such a just resilient community. And he lived with them for like several years going down there in this small wooden house that now the whole street, of course, bears his name. So just imagine there's going to be places where somebody on this phone can't walk into right now or doesn't feel they can walk into. And one day that whole place will be on the block named after you. Like that's how quick God can turn it around for us. Mm, That's so good. Well, That's thank you for I that story for today, today, Vanessa. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know um, any of that. I thought Spike Lee did such an excellent job in that, like, two or three minutes in the intro to Malcolm X talking did. about his parents that I was always so intrigued by, like, okay, well, this is a whole movie. I was just like, it wow, is. like, his parents, you know, were fantastic. <laughs> and it was so tragic. What happened to his mom? Thank you for asking that because, wow, I would have been remiss if I didn't tell this tragic part of the story. His mother, eventually, after the father passed away, the kids were dispersed. They had 10 children into foster homes and to live with other family because she couldn't support them all. That's how Malcolm X ended up getting to New Jersey. And she met another man who she got pregnant by, and he left her while she was pregnant. She had another son with him, Robert. And then shortly after that, Morgan, she had a nervous breakdown, and she was committed to a facility And she was committed and in that facility up until Malcolm X died. I think she died in the facility, but she was there for at least two decades. Horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. And it's not surprising because I was like, how can you withstand one tragedy after another tragedy after another tragedy? Eventually you disconnect. And there's so many people right now 
I was, you know, there's all this uh, research right now around what's happening, like with the pandemic and all this stuff. And there's so many people who are experiencing such high levels of trauma that they're just disconnecting. And so like what we, you know, a nervous breakdown is like, this world is too hostile for me. And so I'm just sending love and support to everybody out there in our community who's experiencing challenges because the cumulative total of those things does add up. Yeah, it's a natural response to break down under that much pressure. Yeah. A natural response. Yeah. It is. But that's why we are ending on a a song that is for everybody who might be feeling like exactly that way. We're going to end on the five heartbeats. I feel like going on. Because I felt that after this story, I was like, it was so heavy and it, it, and it really was bringing tears to my eyes a lot. And yet there's something about their story. There's something about Malcolm. There's something even in the legacy of his death that I feel like is giving us the energy and the courage to keep going on and to keep pushing and to not hold this heaviness, but to believe that we can transform it through the telling of these stories at least and through our daily walking and through our service to our communities. All right. Let's hear Eddie King. (laughs) I'd like to talk to you this evening. I'd like to talk. I'd like to talk to you about getting on when things are not going quite so well. Like this morning, I woke up. I was real depressed. But something told me. Say, you gotta... You gotta keep on keeping on. Like going on.